Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your hosts, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. Guys, Chris Beal and Corey Frank continue their discussion about churn and its various causes. Today's topic is about how a company's growth is managed. Are the guiding forces going after traction first, or are they jumping right into how to scale before they've worked out their product's kinks? Chris and Corey talk about the tragedy of designing for scale before you have traction. As Chris will tell you, it's a fool's errand. If you have no traction, no conversations with your buyers, then you're not going to learn anything about what your customers need or about why they may not be coming back. Once again, market dominance is achieved when you investigate your churn, and that's done with conversations. Today's podcast winds up with a question of who's in charge here when it comes to how to steer a company toward success. Is it the investors you've taken money from who may be pressuring you to scale quickly? Or is it your customers who, if asked, will tell you, what they do or do not like about your product or service, guiding you toward what you should do to keep them renewing. Listen in to what Chris and Corey think about this important matter on today's Market Dominance Guys episode, which comes first, traction or scale? How I think a lot of folks start in this profession of sales, right? We're talking about churn and SaaS, and there's certainly churn in your team. And what do you see when the landscape today, particularly all the implementations connect and sell as part of, I would imagine it saves a lot of careers though, too. When you have the right tech stack with the sales rep who maybe again is in this existential crisis, that tech stack can kind of revitalize or re-clarify, re-energize that what they thought sales was doesn't necessarily have to be what sales will be. And they, they have a sense of promise, of future potential, of hope again, I would imagine in quite a few instances. True? Connect and Sell in particular, I think, has a place in that hope equation in that if you didn't really recognize that your issues had to do with the fact that you just weren't talking to enough people to even have a shot, it's kind of like if somebody put you to the task of driving a car up a hill because you've got to deliver something, or trucks, say you're an Amazon Prime delivery person, which I believe is now one out of three Americans. (laughs) So your job is to get this truck up the hill. Well, if the truck has the horsepower and it has the gearing and it has tires on it and it has a steering wheel that's connected through some coupling mechanism to the front wheels, such they'll both point the same direction at the same time, this seems really straightforward. It may be that the hill is steep or windy. It could be like the hill that led up to the geodesic dome I used to live in up in the Santa Cruz Mountains where people would visit us once and never come back. (laughs) That was pretty common. (laughs) We had very few dinner parties after a certain point. It's like, we're never visiting your house again. Why? Because you can't see where you're going on that hill and there's a cliff. Okay, got it. I don't see the cliff anymore, right? But if if that's your job and... Your boss says, go do it. And then the problem is that there's there's something on the hill, say a little skiff of snow. 
or a little wetness or a little oil or whatever. Sure. That issue, that friction issue, in this case, that lack of friction, friction issue is going to manifest itself as a thousand things you're going to try, none of which are going to work. Because unless you have enough fundamental friction between the tires and the hill, it doesn't matter what else you do. And I think in sales, the role technology can play is to reduce the friction or to provide enough traction, enough grip between the rep and the market that the rep can start to do their job. They can drive up that hill for the first time. And before then, they don't realize they were doing 100 things, but they didn't really have a shot at doing their job, which begins in the conversation. It doesn't begin in the research. It doesn't begin in the strategy. Reps shouldn't be handling company strategy anyway. Why we give company strategy to reps is one of the great mysteries of my life, but people still do it. But but the, by the way, the reason we give company strategy to reps is there's no consequence since they're not going to talk to anybody anyway. So it's it's a fine thing to delegate since it doesn't. There's so there's so little traction between those tires and the road. Well, that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's true. Well, let's also clarify that I think most organizations don't understand or maybe haven't had the pain enough that uh, the list is your ultimate strategy. I can strategize product market fit. I can have great product research. I can have the best engineers. I can have the full feature set, great UI, award-winning UX, everything. But if I leave that to chance to my reps to just go, go on the market, you'll find some buyers out there. Uh, that's probably where most are, correct? From that approach, when you talk about strategy and leaving it to chance. It, it is. And when it's left to chance, you know, when you, when you don't have engagement, real engagement, where you, you have traction, it's like you're building a business. In all businesses, you should seek traction before you treat, seek scale, always. Seek Dreaming about scale before you, before you have traction is a fundamental mistake in designing a business. Because the big question is likely to be, what does it take to get traction? Not what would it take if I had traction to get scale? And I've been through this argument with people for 40 years and say, well, what you're doing doesn't scale. Well, what I'm doing is getting traction now because without traction, thoughts of scale are pointless. If you think that I'm too dumb to realize that there's a point where we now have traction, and by the way, flowing cash coming into the company in excess of over our overhead, and we could redesign around scale. If you don't think we're gonna do that, you're wrong. But designing for scale before you have traction is a fool's errand. And we see this in SaaS companies every day. Most are designed for scale and they fail before they get traction. Mm -hmm. It's just most fundamental quality of business. If you have no traction, for one thing, you're gonna die. For another thing, you're not gonna learn anything about what your customers really need. You're gonna live in a fantasy land of your own making. You're gonna find yourself having internal meetings about why your customers are not coming back, right? Internal meetings on churn are a joke. Just talk to your customers, the ones that left and find out why they left. And, and then after the fact, categorize those and whichever categories got the most in it, that's probably the one you should address, right? The data, the conversations will tell you the answer and your internal discussions are probably not gonna help very much. Don't do the schema in advance, have the conversations first, do the schema later. This, by the way, is the same, the same rule. Conversations are attraction. Schema yeah. is scale. 
but is that a new phenomenon over the last unicorn era or is it a better remnant for quite a while? But is it, is it, if we had to, is it exponentially connected? Is there correlation or causation because of the venture money that's poured into the marketplace about designing, especially these SaaS companies for scale versus uh, traction, would you say? I think it's an investor-driven phenomenon, has been for quite a while. That is not a very informed opinion because I started doing companies myself in 1983 with Silicon Valley venture money, even though I was living in Boulder, Colorado. And this argument came up very quickly. So first product that I built with another guy, we built a bunch of different things. We had a relational database built from scratch. And I do mean like a relational database, DBMS. It was the pre-Oracle version of the stuff quite fast. And we had to decide, was that going to be our product? Well, we had this MRP thing, which was now you call it ERP. We decided to go that route. But was it okay to specialize into flow manufacturing instead of all manufacturing? Well, we decided for traction reasons it was because flow manufacturers, folks who put stuff in one end of a, instead of a production line, they've got a trough, right? <laughs> those, those folks who worked with tanker cars full of stuff, they were underserved. And so we went down that road and our venture capitalists at one point in about 1986 said, we don't see how this scales. So what we want you to do is shrink wrap it, put it on these new things called PCs, and we'll pump a bunch of money and you can sell it to little companies. Little companies didn't need what we had. It was just a top-down view where scale was given prominence or priority over traction. And we took what I think would have been the next SAP, perhaps. You never know. We might have failed at it, right? But it, it certainly had a shot. We had big customers. We had lots of very happy customers who were getting something they couldn't get any other way. They were paying us a lot of money. But that desire for not just scale, but scale now sure. kind of overwhelmed. Now, look at SAP. SAP is a company that fundamentally, you would say, couldn't scale because every implementation was effectively custom. The software was standard, but the implementation was custom. But they found a way to scale in the US. They stumbled on it a little bit, but they they embraced it in the 90s, which was to let Anderson Consultant, Consulting take them into the market. They gave up a certain amount of revenue, but they got scale another way and still preserved the very fundamental qualities of an SAP offering, which is it's going to work in your company because somebody's going to fit it to your company. You may pay the consultant more than you pay the software guy, but the software company is going to end up being capable of creating the richest man in Europe. So I think that people get confused and it brings up this question of patience. It's extremely rare to make a great business. In fact, it's almost unheard of to make a great actual business in less than 10 years. This is rare. And yet the the lifetime of most venture funds is 10 years. Mm -hmm. So if you take money from a venture capitalist five years into their fund, yeah, they're going to stick with you after those five years, but the level of patience is going to be, uh, shall we say their level of patience or their kind of patience is going to be distinct from the patience the market might have with you. It may well be that you need to hang around longer and solve more problems with more customers in order to really figure it out. And that's the market's patience. The market will continue to keep you in business. But unfortunately, you gave up control to somebody whose timeline is different from yours. 
and they're looking for 10x to 100x and you aren't it yet. And so you made a deal you didn't think that you'd made. Mm-hmm. And that, that one I think ends up being often, I think, kind of tragic, not in that people aren't going in eyes open, but there's some really, really good solutions to some serious problems that have been thrown into the ash heap of history and, and they're left to be rediscovered. I talked to a CEO today of a company who's basically doing a superb job, this company is, of building something that I happen to be involved in building something similar in 2008. I think it's wonderful that they're doing this now. But the thing probably could have been kept going in 2008 is just the venture guys got impatient and they wanted a consumer product. Sure. Well, asking me to do a consumer product is totally idiotic because not because a consumer product's not a great idea. They're great ideas when done well, but because I'm an idiot when it comes to consumerism. I mean, I, I suck as a consumer. You could even run a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Restaurant. Thank God. I, I understand food that I get, I get, I get food and I get service. Those things I could have done already. It just wasn't my adventure. But I do think these things all go together, that traction and patience and solving real problems and then somehow making the money equation work. And then the question of churn and whether it's good or bad churn and whole product, this stuff all goes together. And when somebody complains about a company that it has too many moving parts. I remember when I left requisite technology, the guy I was asked to leave because uh, I believe because, given that it followed the next day at 5.30 in the morning, um, because I had made this strong suggestion that I should be the CEO and that I had a plan. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible Whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at (laughs) connectandsell.com. And I thought my plan was pretty good. And they thought a better plan was that I would clean out my desk that day. <laughs> so, Just you know, a I, difference of opinion. Yes, right. Yeah, it was a difference of opinion. And there's their opinion obviously counted more than mine since, you know, this is just how this stuff works. They, they were the, they were on the board and, and the CEO, by the way, who, who put the note on my coffee cup that said, Chris, see me, Lou, is still a very, very close personal friend. So it does show that you don't have to take these things personally. In fact, I still really appreciate what he, what he did for me and how he did it. But when I kind of look back on that situation and think, okay, what happened next? Well, they got a new CEO in there eventually. It took a while, but they got, you know, they got somebody in there. And he called me up the second day on the job and said, Chris, this thing's incomprehensible that you built here. It's got so many moving parts. I can't understand how they go together. Mm-hmm. And I went and had lunch with them and drew some pictures on napkins and stuff like that. And, you know, offered my help. And it turned out, I think, to be too hard to, to figure out. But my point is, the moving parts are already there. They're built into the world as we find it. There isn't a situation in business that's simple. They, everyone that's of any value has all these dimensions. 
and they all have a money dimension. Are you, your overhead is that racehorse that eats while you sleep. It will break you eventually unless you can figure out how to make the cash equation work. And the cash equation runs off a gross profit flow in some way or off a funding flow in some way. And you got to figure that out. It is and there that, is a whole product problem. You know, it's all there. But that, that overcapitalization, we can talk about this here because it's a natural trajectory here. Overcapitalization in business, how much harm does that do to CEOs and managers versus what you're saying, which is I got to learn to live within my means. I got to learn to live lean. If I have a company that's seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, and maybe I've been through a few cycles versus if I continually go from series A to series B to series C, I never really have that tight cash crunch crisis, three in the morning, can't sleep because how do I feed this racehorse? And maybe talk a little bit about your opinions on that, because I think that I have a good friend. I think we've said that many times that Tim Crown, who chairman of Insight, him and his brother started it. And he always said the best ideas for me come when I'm around porcelain, right? (laughs) As a CEO, talk about existential crisis. He always said the best ideas and the best solutions to my problems come when I'm hanging around porcelain, the shower, brushing my teeth, shaving, in the toilet, wherever it is. And is capital sometimes too easy to get just because you can get it, should you, because you miss out on on really trying to figure out how these problems can, can be solved in much more creative ways versus just adding more capital? I think too much capital is the biggest problem in at least in tech, there's there's always more money that wants deals than there are smart things to do with it at that instant. Mm-hmm. And it's also provided in these chunks, these big chunks. And it's because as Matt Melamuka over at Peakspan says, these, these funds have got too much money and too few partners. And so they've got to seek unicorns. They've got to seek that, that huge exit. And they're going to sacrifice lots and lots of good companies in order to do it. It's not intentional. There's no bad will involved in any of this stuff. It's just math. Like so many of the bad things in life. It's like viruses are just math. Right? <laughs> they just are. And I don't know if somebody thinks a virus isn't math. I can you know, have a private conversation with them about the nature of viruses and math. But I guarantee you a virus is an inevitable piece of math based on how cells reproduce. And that's just the way it is. So the, the fact is there's money over-concentrated, over-piled up in the hands of a smaller number of money managers who call themselves venture capitalists and growth equity guys. And it's because if you have money, you know, say you're a pension fund or whatever, who are you going to put it with? The one who had the big exits and big successes in their previous funds or not? It may be pure superstition. After all, if you just roll dice or flip coins... Half of them are going to be better than the other half and investing in the half that are better by luck is a bad idea, but no worse an idea than investing at random, Right. except they'll command a higher price, <laughs> so, you know, which they take out of your HUD. The problem is, I think the problem with money is actually not the quantity of it. The problem is that it shifts the customer from being the customer who gets economic value from actually using your product in this B2B. Again, I've told you, I know nothing about consumers. I'm, I'm literally like uh, 
I, I know nothing. I don't know that that glass I'm drinking that Macallan 12 out of is the wrong glass. It is not. <laughs> that's not me. I know that I have a fondness for the Macallan 12 and I can afford it and that's about it. Mm -hmm. So that's the level of sophistication that, you know, this consumer goes for, right? But in B2B, I've been around a little bit and I know a little bit about, about how it works. And what happens in B2B is your customer has fundamentally got two qualities that you have to take into account. One is that the buying person or committee, but the buying person in particular is afraid. And we've talked about this at length on Market Dominance, guys. Mm -hmm. They're afraid, they're cautious, they're nervous, say it however you want. There are consequences to a bad buy for a business that are not there in the case of a bad buy for yourself as a consumer. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. The second is businesses vary in more interesting and important ways regarding a product helping them than individuals do. Individuals are bound tightly by biology and relatively tightly by culture, by the society that they live in, and then somewhat tightly by demographics. How do they fit within that society? Yep. And so in consumer-oriented businesses, we can segment, and when we find a hit, the hit, we double down on the hit. That's kind of the rule for consumer-oriented businesses, right? You segment, you micro-segment, you find a hit, you strike a chord, boom, go, be prepared to make more of that and, and market the living daylights out of it. It's not how it works in B2B because our names for the different kinds of companies and different kinds of roles and different kinds of problems they have don't map very cleanly onto the actual companies and their variety and the actual kinds of businesses they're in and the actual roles. Companies are not constrained by biology. It's always the Wild West, always the Wild West. And so when you go to solve a problem for a company, you have to be prepared to do more different things other than simply say, here's the product. And those different things are opportunities to learn what might be the future product, what might be the ancillary services, what might be the partnerships that would help and where to say no. All of these things are like the things that you must practice every day when you're evolving and, and nurturing a B2B company. You're always paying attention to this stuff. The intelligence that comes back from your interaction with customers tells you what not to do, guides you toward what to do, and basically also freaks you out about what you might be able to do, both positively and negatively. And guess what? None of that stuff makes any difference to your investors because they weren't in the thesis when they invested. So when you take too much money, your investor becomes your customer. And you, here's how you can tell you have a serious problem in a company, serious, serious problem. When you spend a whole day, once a month, six weeks or a quarter or whatever, preparing for a board meeting. <laughs> and it's an investor board. Sure. Your investor board is not going to benefit sufficiently from that extra bunch of preparation compared to just sitting down with them and telling them what's going on. Yeah, yeah. They just aren't. So you're putting on a show for somebody. Well, why are you putting on the show? Because you want that next round of financing. Right. That's why. And that next round of financing becomes your next deal. So you go from a company that might have 100 deals or 1,000 deals or 10,000 deals and deal with all that variety, get all that intel back and use that intel and think your product better, your service is better, decide what to invest in and what not to invest in. 
and what kind of people to hire and what your attitude is going to be towards offering help to your customers, all that stuff, right? Which is where real businesses run. And you're going to forget that. And what you're going to do is prepare for the next board meeting because you're putting on a show for somebody. So true. So true. Yeah. You're, you're dancing with the wrong person at that party. Right. And uh, you're right. You're dancing with their mom mm -hmm. and she's not going to marry you. <laughs> right. You know, that's all there is to it. I'm sorry, you're both 17 and you're going to be a little bit clumsy and next year you'll be 18 and eventually maybe you'll be able to get married. But dancing with her mom is not going to help you. Yeah, yeah. I hope. <laughs> well, it's illegal in 16 states too, so it's fine. Yeah, but, but it's fascinating that you know, the, the best of the best, and there's nothing wrong with taking money fundamental, right? I mean, I actually believe that putting capital to work in companies is the smartest thing you can do with capital. That's why private equity is such a big business. And, but private equity is careful. They tend to be a little later stage. They, private equity invests in businesses. Venture capital invests in a company, but it really is an, a combination of an entrepreneur and idea and their own sense of how that might play out, right? Which is a category that everybody else is investing in. They're very, very different games. And folks like Matt Melamuka can come and Peakspan can come into a world that's kind of like venture capital, but they're bringing a growth equity mindset. They're saying, everybody succeeds. 100% of our investments are gonna yield. They're gonna yield positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. That's very different from 5% or 10%. So I really admire folks like that that are looking at a way to bring capital to bear on good companies and even potentially great companies with an, a sharp eye to how not to ruin those companies inadvertently through excess capital or by becoming the customer. Well, yet again, Chris, in our hour or so conversation, somehow we've made it a point to talk about what it seems that so many of our 60 plus episodes are about. We always get a little bit of rock climbing in there, I think, somehow. <laughs> We always talk about capital. We always talk about churn, um, SaaS, and then we even dosed a little bit of existentialism in there. And maybe what we should do in next episode is we could have a throwback machine where you can grow your hair out. You can have your jean shorts and we can reminisce. Tell the listeners here that I have a running tally of how many different positions Chris has has maintained and has communicated throughout these episodes. And I think we're up to 18 or so. So I'm sure there's a few more that there's always some good business lessons that come from you either rock climbing or hanging out at the wrong place at the right time. And so more to come hopefully with many episodes. So with that, Chris, it's always been a pleasure chat with you. And until next time on the Market Dominance Guys, this is Corey Frank and Chris Beal, the Sage of Sales. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.